Good morning, you're on 3CR Breakfast, and as always, we must begin by acknowledging that we're broadcasting today on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning into the program this morning. And I also want to acknowledge that it's Reconciliation Week this week, and the theme is Be Brave and Make Change. So a massive shout out there to all of the amazing Indigenous activists who are pushing for change in our society. I also want to give thanks to all of the Indigenous broadcasters here at 3CR. Um, You can tune in by uh, listening on 3cr.org.au, and you can check out all of the amazing First Nations programs we have. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Hello, good morning. Good morning, Jacob. How are you today? I'm feeling weirdly energized for for 7am, which as we know isn't really my optimal hours normally. I heard you got a very good night's sleep last night. Yes, uh, it turns out sleeping is actually really good for having a clear head in the morning, uh, as I've discovered on this day. Well, it's the 1st of June, so uh, new beginnings, new government, new sleep patterns yeah (laughs) new optimism new optimism certainly and how are you feeling this morning i'm feeling good too awesome and i think we've got a really fun show coming up we have we're starting off with a really interesting listen Uh, we're going to hear from judith peppard who's one of our old colleagues from wednesday uh, breakfast Uh, and this piece uh, she put together for communication mixed down and she spoke to professor katie field about research which suggests that mushrooms have the ability to communicate with each other and that fungi has an electrical language all of its own. So that's going to be really intriguing. I mean, I've heard about the bees can count, mm. but I hadn't heard about the mushrooms. So. Yeah, that's so fascinating to think <laughs> our fungi, their, their communication systems are probably better than ours, knowing us <laughs> as humans. <laughs> Apparently they might even use words to form sentences and communicate with their neighbours. So wow, it's another reason not to pluck the top of a mushroom cap off as you're walking in the woods. <laughs> oh, tragic. I, I do love a good mushroom, though. Uh, <laughs> and then, Maybe that's why you're such a good talker. Oh, the, um, the communication, it runs through my stomach and then through my veins. <laughs> and then at 7.30, um, we have a bit more of a, a serious one. So I'll be speaking with a lawyer Nick Stewart um, about the New South Wales inquiry into LGBTQIA plus hate crimes that was announced last month. Um, so if you haven't heard, the Premier has announced that there will be a, a Supreme Court inquiry into 88 unsolved murders between 1970 and 2010. So that one's a very important topic um, and it's definitely something that feels very close um, to my community. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to unpacking a bit further what that's mm. all about. Yeah, really important. And then you're going to bring us another segment from Earth Matters relating to the yes. climate change debate. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of the the media attention, rightfully so, has been on the election the past few weeks. But it's really important to still remember um, the impact of the floods in Lismore. Um, we're seeing still there's a massive effort uh, to, to clean up and, yeah, a lot of recovery efforts. So we're going to be playing a segment from Earth Matters um, that played a few weeks ago. Beck Horridge spoke to Susie Russell about a, a Trees Not Bombed uh, cafe that was set up. So it's like a, a mobile hot food kitchen um, that was feeding a lot of the, the victims of the flood um, while they still didn't have any other kind of sources of, you know, sit-down cafe style uh, services. So It's always wonderful to hear about these innovative um, projects and ideas that communities come up with in the face of disaster. Mm. Yeah, the resilience of that community in the Northern Rivers is always really inspiring and I think it's important as well to, to share stories of hope and mm. not just stories of despair because if um, not to you know downplay the um, the devastation and the catastrophe that occurred, but I think something we can applaud is the resilience and courage of the human spirit and the the strength of the community there. Absolutely, I'm sure that it's been one of the main things that's got them through. Mm. So uh, good to uh, share the um, the spirit with our listeners, and then at. 10 past 8 to finish off the show. I will be speaking with Kelton Pell. He's a, an acclaimed Australian First Nations actor and he's the star of a film called One Night the Moon, which was actually made 20 years ago. It's directed and co-written by Rachel Perkins, so one of her earlier films. And it's being screened this Sunday as part of the St Kilda Film Festival. We spoke to the director of the festival last week and he gave us a bit of a rundown of what the events would be like on the program and he mentioned this one. So I thought it would be um, a great opportunity to chat to Kelton. He's the star of the uh, film. Um, but he's also going to be uh, in Melbourne for the event and having a post-film conversation with Uncle Jack Charles and they've also got First Nations music, so it's quite an afternoon of uh, film, music and conversation. I think that one's at the Gershwin Room at the ESPY. So, yeah, we'll be hearing from Kelton a bit later and uh, looking forward to that one too. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds like such a, a good film. I'm really keen to hear more about it. And it's so lovely to see, I think we were talking about this before, the city coming back to life uh, post-COVID. I think there's so many cool events on at the moment yeah the rising festival kicks off on sunday with mm. a picture of dorian gray and uh, there's a huge number of amazing events in that program as well that's sort of the white knights program that we had a couple of years ago it's been refashioned as the rising festival oh so interesting. get out into the city and enjoy <laughs> what's uh, what's on Amazing. Well, I, I really look forward to it. We're going to jump to a couple of community service announcements now, but we'll be right back very soon. 
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. strong. a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Claudia. And now we're going to listen to our interview from Judith Peppert of the 3CR's Communication Mixdown Show when she spoke with Professor Katie Field about the language and communication of mushrooms. So we're going to hear about that research now and uh, I'll just hand over to Judith uh, to introduce her guest. I'm Judith Peppard, and now we're going to move to mushrooms. How do mushrooms fit in a program about communication? We're about to find out. Katie Field is a professor in plant soil processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK, and she's been looking at some of the research that, intriguingly, suggests that mushrooms actually have the ability to communicate with one another. The research she's referring to was conducted by computer scientist Andrew Adamatsky director of the Unconventional Computing Laboratory of the University of the West of England. I began by asking Katie to explain, in layperson's terms, what Professor Adamatsky actually did to find out that mushrooms have an electrical language all their own and far more complicated than anyone previously thought. He's plugged tiny electrodes into fungus, basically. So he's plugged it into where they're growing from. And he's measured the electrical signals that have been transmitted across these filaments. And what he's found is spikes in those electrical signals, which look a lot like the spikes that you see in nerve cells. The patterning of those spikes is very similar to the ones that happen when animals are communicating. So when people are talking or when other types of animals are are sort of communicating with others of the same species. And so from that, he's kind of then applied this mathematical algorithm to it. And what he's found is that it looks really similar. The results are really similar to actual language with these spiking patterns being similar to words and forming even like what look like sentences. I think it's really important to point out though is that we don't understand what this language is or whether it really is actually a language or is it just sort of spikes in activity being transmitted across an organism. 
So again, we have to remember fungi are not like animals. They're not like plants. They're their own kingdom of organisms. And they actually exist as this series of filaments or tubes that grow either through the soil or decaying wood or whatever it is that they happen to be feeding on. And these tubes are all interconnected and they just kind of pass signals and nutrients across this sort of fungal mycelial network. It's not 100% clear whether these signals that are being detected actually are communication or are they just kind of a pattern of it foraging? So it's, it's very mysterious, but also really, really interesting. Yeah, and also very science fiction almost. And I guess the next set of experiments to do is test whether the signals change, whether you have different patterning if you expose the fungus to a stress or if you give it some food does it then start communicating where that food is to the rest of the fungal mycelia or is it just this background pulsating sort of electrical noise yes another discovery you've noted from this research is that different species of mushrooms use different languages Yeah. So the researcher in question, he measured these electrical spikes in different species of mushrooms. And what he found is that those different species transmitted these electrical spikes in different frequencies and amplitudes. Just There were different patterns according to what species was. And so he kind of interpreted that as like a species specific language and that each species was communicating in its own special way. Again, I'm I'm a little bit sceptical of it actually being a language and it might actually just be reflective of the way that fungus is growing or how it's transmitting information amongst its own sort of mycelial network, which I guess you can look at as a type of language. It all depends on what you define as what is communication, what is language. And we have to remember that they're almost like aliens to us, like they're, they're totally different kingdom. They're as different to us as like plants are to fish, right? They're completely different. Yeah, for sure. But but it does seem that they are communicating from this research. They're definitely transmitting information, which is fascinating, right? No one's ever seen that before or certainly not measured it in that way. I'm speaking with Professor Katie Field about the possibility that mushrooms are communicating and possibly communicate with words and sentences in what humans describe as a language. But I had some other questions for Katie. Some of the research you've discussed, it talks about underground networks of communication where mushrooms and mushrooms uh, communicate, but also mushrooms and plants are communicating with each other. Can you give me some examples? These are what we call mycorrhizal networks. So mycorrhizas, they're everywhere. And all that word means, it's a relationship between a fungus and a plant root. And nearly all plants around us have these associations in their roots. So when you're looking at a plant, you're actually really looking at a plant and fungus together. Traditionally, we've always considered mycorrhizal associations to be uh, related to plant nutrient uptake. So the fungus helps the plant get nutrients out of the soil because it's much better at doing that than plant roots. They're much finer, so they can get nutrients from smaller pores in the soil. Uh, They can also secrete sort of acids and digestive sort of enzymes and stuff um, that actually weather the minerals in the soil and extract nutrients and pass them to the plant the plant otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So in return, the plant gives the fungus carbon that it's, it's fixed from photosynthesis, so things like sugars and fats. It gives it that organic carbon. So they kind of have this mutualistic partnership between one another and they are like intimately associated so they grow the fungus grows inside the plant root and that they live together as one but recent research has shown that actually 
below ground, these mycorrhizal fungal networks form between neighboring plants. So they actually share a fungal partner. So one fungus can be connecting the roots of one plant to another plant. What this research has shown recently is the plants are able to respond to what's happening to a neighboring plant that's connected by a fungus. With the experiment I'm thinking of, they showed that when you apply a herbivore, so an aphid or another insect to a plant, that has a mycorrhizal fungal network connecting it to a neighbor. The neighboring plant that doesn't have that aphid herbivore or that the other insects that's causing it damage, that plant starts emitting defensive compounds in response to its neighbor being attacked. So it kind of like the neighbor's sending this signal somehow through the mycorrhizal network, making the neighboring plant respond and ward off pests. Wow, it sounds like communication. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, right, it's amazing. But I mean, we don't know how it does that. And I think what's exciting about the research with the language is that actually that kind of gives us a clue as to how those messages are being transmitted between neighboring plants, for example, how, how that sort of message might actually look in, in reality. So it could be that it's an electrical impulse that's actually informing neighboring plants. So maybe plants are able to interpret this fungal language to then respond to external stresses. So I think you've already begun to address this question, but how would you counter the argument that the interpretation of these experiments uh, representing insights into fungal communication and, uh, dare I say, consciousness, uh, to what extent are they merely forms of anthropomorphism, mm. attributing human characteristics to non-human matter? Yeah, I think it's really, really tempting to look at phenomena like this and see reflected in it things that we recognise, so our own language and the way that we form words and sentences. We have to remember that these organisms have evolved along a completely different trajectory to humans. What we recognise as language and consciousness could be very different in other organisms. Fungi don't have nervous systems. They don't have like a brain. But that doesn't mean there isn't some form of consciousness even. And it could be just that we don't recognise that. And I think although we're right to kind of be sceptical about literally translating what we're seeing as being a, a language, I think, I think we should be sceptical of that and we should sort of be critical and think about it in a very careful way. But I think also we should also be open to the idea that, you know, consciousness, it can be different to our own consciousness and what we see isn't necessarily, or what we think of as consciousness might not be the same across different kingdoms of life. Yes. And of course, mushrooms are, are so old. Do they precede human life on Earth? Even old, older than plant life, right? They've been around for half a billion years at least. Fungi were probably present on Earth's terrestrial surfaces way before plants were. There's suggestion that they might even be up to a billion years old. So there was some fossil evidence of potential fungal structures that were dated to be around a billion years old. I think we can definitely say they were around at least half a billion years ago, which is way before humans, animals, or plant life was on Earth's land masses. As a lot of research suggests that actually fungi were responsible for helping bring plants onto the land out of the water. So they've played this huge important part in the evolution of ecosystems. You conclude your paper by saying these results could represent the first insights into fungal intelligence and even consciousness, as, as you have said already, and that that is a very big could. 
But depending on the definitions involved, a possibility remains, though it would seem to exist on time scales, frequencies, and magnitudes not easily perceived by humans. So, Katie Field, do you think fungi are about to take over the world? I think fungi already have taken over the world. I think they took over the world half a billion years ago. When we when we look at a mushroom, we think we're looking at fungi, but we're not. The mushroom is just the tip of the iceberg. They pervert it. They exist on every continent. They exist in the water. They're born in the air. And they kind of, they take every possible form you can imagine from invisible, tiny single cells right through to huge mushroom reproductive structures. And the largest organism on earth is a fungus, right? It's a honey fungus. It's, it's, it's kilometers long. I think we live in a fungal world. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And that was Professor Katie Field from the University of Sheffield in the UK talking to Judith Peppard on Communication Mixdown about new research suggesting mushrooms have the ability to communicate. A big thank you to Judith for sharing this interview with us today. And you can listen to more of Communication Mixdown every Monday at 6pm on 3CR. And what a fascinating interview. It was. I found that really interesting. It was kind of like neurodiversity within the mushroom world yeah. this idea that there are different ways of thinking and being consciousness and we shouldn't just assume that every plant or organism is the same as us or judge them based on you know what we consider to be normal Mm, mm. mushroom equality i say <laughs> we're um we're certainly living in the age of the the anthropocene but i think uh, there's definitely a lot we can learn from the natural world and that interview really just reiterated that for me absolutely and on our uh, nadoc week sorry reconciliation week theme um we're going to be playing some first nations music this one is called return home by bumpy I don't want to sit alone It's a company Say 
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. strong. They caution to First Nations peoples that this ad contains sensitive content about the stolen generations. For many Aboriginal Victorian community members, the trauma from forced removal still runs deep. In consultation with community, the Victorian Government has developed the Stolen Generations Reparations Package. We acknowledge there is still more to be done to address injustice experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For more information, contact 1800 566 071 or please visit the website. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Claudia. And that song that we just heard was Return Home uh, by Bumpy. And we're going to turn the dial a bit now uh, to our next segment. And just a warning to our listeners, this next segment contains mentions of murders, um, particularly against the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and it also will likely contain discussions of police violence. So if that makes you feel uncomfortable in any way, um, please tune back in at around 7.40. Um, but we're going to be talking about a New South Wales inquiry that was announced in April this year that will investigate 88 unsolved murders committed against LGBTQIA people between 1970 and 2010. Led by the Supreme Court Judge John Sakar, the inquiry comes as a result of parliamentary committee recommendations and years of advocacy uh, from the work of the LGBT community. And joining us now is Nick Stewart, who is a partner at Dowson Turco Law, and he's been quite involved in getting this inquiry off the ground. Nick, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us a bit more about the inquiry um, and maybe give us a bit of background as to why it's such a significant move. Sure. Uh, Look, the inquiry followed two parliamentary inquiries in New South Wales, um, which looked at the history of LGBTIQ plus um, bashings and hate crimes, including murders. Um, I led the campaign for those inquiries because it was really important to get on the public record um, the targeting and harassment and bias um, 
within the New South Wales community towards LGBTIQ plus people um, and the fact that many murders of gay men and trans people had not been investigated properly or killers were simply just um, walking around with impunity. The two parliamentary inquiries then led to um, a further campaign for a judicial commission of inquiry, which is an independent inquiry led by a judge separate to Parliament, and that's what the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet, announced earlier this year. Um, And like you said, it is looking at um, 88 deaths of gay men or transgender people identified by the New South Wales Police Force in their Parabell investigation, Um, but about 23, and don't quote me, but about 23 of those um, are solved, in very commas, Um, but um, many remain unsolved. And even those that have been solved, we say, probably need a review because, um, as many people know, Scott Johnson um, in New South Wales was found at the bottom of Manly Cliffs and his death was, in very commas, solved when police ruled it off, ruled it out as a suicide. Um, And it was only after three coronary inquests that it was actually discovered that he was murdered. Um, and subsequently a person has been prosecuted for his death and sent to jail. Mm, It was definitely a really grim case, and I'm wondering if you can shed some light on sort of what was the general nature uh, of these crimes that are being investigated at the moment. Sure. Well, look, they all generally involve the targeting of gay men or transgender people because we were seen as vulnerable, we were seen as people who wouldn't fight back. Um, many deaths in New South Wales were um, committed or murders were committed on the cliffs of our coastline. So um, around Bondi and Marks Park, there are several murders of gay men um, that have not been resolved um, and are cold cases effectively where um, men have been bashed on the cliffs and thrown off the cliffs to their death. Um, one particular death involved John Russell, um, who was found at the base of a cliff, cliff and um, in his hand he was holding um, hair from what we believe to be a perpetrator. Um, unfortunately, that, that exhibit, that hair has gone missing, um, making it very hard for police to effectively investigate. Um, his death was a bit initially ruled as um, a suicide or an accidental, you know, he fell off kind of thing, um, but we know that he was murdered. Um, you know, there there are so many um, similar situations around Bondi, but there's also bashings in public toilets, um, home invasions, um, bashings in Centennial Park and murders in Centennial Park. It's a really gruesome um, project um, to look back into, Um, But we believe that we can't really have truth and healing until we um, go back into our past and look at why gay men and transgender people particularly, as well as lesbians, were targeted for bashings and murders. Mm, It's it's such a heart-wrenching thing to, to think about, and I imagine it would take quite an emotional toll trying to look into these cases, many of which occurred three to four decades ago, what are some of the challenges of prosecuting someone after such an extended period of time? Yeah, good question. I just think, um, 
you know, um, historical murders are always hard. Cold cases are always hard because witnesses who may have been around um, at the time may no, no longer be around. Um, people's memories fade over time. Um, you know, you have to go back and look at a snapshot in time and identify who was around, what the um, deceased was doing at the time. They can't talk. Um, their family members may not be around to explain why they were, um, you know, in Bondi or at a cliff. Um, one particular de death um, involved a Frenchman who went missing and was not reported missing for about five years. Um, and, you know, I just think... Um, it's so hard in those circumstances. It's so hard to go back and find evidence. But we saw with the Scott Johnson investigation that with resources, you can actually identify suspects. Um, and a lot of money and resources went into investigating or reinvestigating Scott Johnson's death, and that led to the prosecution of an accused person. So I think it can be done, but it requires resources and it requires dedication and determination. Mm, certainly many challenges, as you, you mentioned, just getting evidence and, and eyewitness accounts. Uh, but looking forwards, as you said, um, with resources and, and dedication, we can achieve justice. And I want to ask you, what does justice look like for the victims and their loved ones and also the LGBTQIA plus community at large? Mm, justice is a funny word. You know, um, I'm not sure we'll ever get justice. To me, justice is about holding people accountable for their actions. Um, but I think for the LGBT community, it's a bit more than that because we may not identify all of the perpetrators. But therefore, to me, justice would look like um, our government acknowledging the wrongs of the past, doing everything it can to identify killers and identify people who committed hate crimes towards us and recognising the role of society, the role of government, the role of the health system, the role of the police, the role of the judicial system, um, you know, the role of the AIDS pandemic pandemic, and the Grim Reaper um, advertisements that were broadcast on television sets in the 80s and 90s. What, how did they, all those factors play into this kind of attitude towards the LGBTIQ plus community? Mm, there's there's so much harmful uh, media and attitudes that existed back then. I certainly feel very fortunate uh, to exist now in a time that's much more inclusive and accepting. Uh, and the, the Parliamentary Committee uh, in 2018 that you mentioned before found that the New South Wales police were quite indifferent to gay hate crimes in the 80s and 90s. But then there was a separate investigation, um, Strike Force Parabell, which you also mentioned before in, in 2013, that concluded it was almost impossible to identify a gay hate bias among cops at the time. So what are your thoughts on the role police have played historically in investigating gay and trans hate crimes? Mm. Look, I think um, it's obvious to me that there was bias towards many of the investigations. Um, you know, ruling suicide in circumstances where there's probably clear evidence of at least manslaughter or murder, I think points to um, bias. The Parabell strike force also didn't reinvestigate. It was a review. It basically looked on the papers rather than re 
interviewing witnesses or actually taking a whole fresh view of um, evidence. In other words, I think it's really hard to for the police force to determine whether there was bias or not based on a review. Um, you'd actually have to get back into the cases and operators if you're reinvesting in a cold case to ascertain whether there was bias. And I think if that was done, and I think that will be done through this Judicial Commission of Inquiry, um, maybe there will be revelations of actual bias in investigations. You know, we had a newsreader in, in New South Wales, John Russell, um, who went missing off Monks Park. Um, his keys were found close by, not by police, but by his friends. Um, you know, he was just left. Being, there was no investigation, and his mum wrote repeatedly to the police force asking for an investigation. Her letters were ignored. It was only when there was a straight police officer who discovered um, John's case in a corner um, that he petitioned the coroner for a, a full-on inquiry who then found that he was killed. So, you know, there's there's a lot to look into here. Absolutely. And I think the police has been a really divisive topic uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community, both historically um, and in contemporary times. Many folks don't really feel safe with police attending things like Pride events. Um, but then there's also the other side of the coin, which is that a lot of people are asserting queer um, and trans members of the police force have the same right as everyone else to be included. So do you think that police still have a place uh, in contemporary Pride movements? And if so, how can police build a better relationship with the LGBTQIA plus community? Sure. Look, I acknowledge um, the view that um, the views from some people and some groups that police don't have a role in Pride and Mardi Gras. Um, but my view is that they do. And the reason I say that is because I am an optimist. Um, I think that we can only have change by working with law enforcement. Um, as you say, there are members of our community now enrolling to become police officers and the police force is slowly, very slowly becoming representative of us. Um, I think in New South Wales, I think we've affected enormous change over the last 10 years in terms of the relationship of the police and the community. Um, the police have said sorry. The commissioner has said sorry for um, what he believes is maybe a lack of um, respect for and attitude towards the LGBT community when investigating crimes against us. Um, you know, this parabell was a good thing. I don't think it went far enough, but it was still a good thing. Um, I think what we need is really clear messaging from the New South Wales Police Force is that they will adopt language and policies and attitudes that include us and protect us because they are there to protect everyone, not just straight people. Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. And I guess on a broader sense, what are your hopes um, for how the, the legal system can better serve our community moving forwards? Look, my hope is that there's just more funding within law enforcement for units that are designed um, to understand and work with our communities. Um, in New South Wales, we have these gay and lesbian liaison officers. They're a fantastic program, but we need more of them. We need them to be in every station. We need them to actively work with the LGBT community to make them feel safe and comfortable. 
um, and in Victoria Police, I think that is the same thing. You know, you need police forces to actually identify us as a large part of the population that's vulnerable and deserving of protection. Um, but that also means understanding us, you know, really doing research and understanding who we are and how we behave and how we live our lives. Mm, and I think um, you mentioned before as well, just diversifying the police force so it is representative of the population, right? Totally, totally. And look, women are more than 50% of the population. So let's have more women in the police force. Let's have more women leading police forces. Um, mm. And, you know, we all know that women have generally been our saviours. They've been our friends and our supporters in our lives. Um, they're more understanding of gay men and trans people generally. Um, but also we need more LGBTIQ plus people in the police force, um, more First Nations people and so on. It, it just means diversity and representation. Mm, it's it's certainly a vision uh, worth pursuing. Well, Nick, that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. It's been really special. Cool. My pleasure, Jacob. All the best, mate. Thank you. And that was Nick Stewart there from Dowson Turco Lawyers speaking on the New South Wales inquiry into LGBTQIA plus hate crimes that was announced uh, last month. I think we can all take a bit of a breath now. If, if any of that um, content disturbed you, please feel free to contact uh, Beyond Blue or Lifeline and have a chat. Um, we're going to hop to another song now, continuing on our Reconciliation Week theme of uh, playing Indigenous artists. This one's a really fun one. It's called Cloud Nine uh, by Baker Boy and Kian. Stop back with the power of my blackness. 
You're on 3CR Breakfast. Uh, the time is 7.46. We just heard an interview with Nick Stewart about the New South Wales Gay and Trans uh, Hate Crimes Inquiry. And now we're going to head on over to our next part of the show. This is a segment from Earth Matters that was recorded a few weeks ago. Um, it's talking about a kind of grassroots uh, cafe that was founded by Susie Russell, um, and it was dubbed Trees Not Bombs, so it's a, a play on the Foods Not Bombs movement. Essentially, they're serving hot food to flood-affected uh, uh, residents in Lismore and the Northern Rivers. Now, I th- know it's a, a few weeks old, but the reason I thought it was important to bring up was because I know a lot of people in those flood-affected areas are probably feeling really forgotten right now. And it's important to note that the recovery effort is going to take uh, months. So I think this uh, this interview really sheds quite a strong light on just uh, how catastrophic the floods were. But it's also a story of hope and a story of community resilience. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you to Beck Horridge for bringing us this interview. Well, I'm feeling very honoured today because I'm here with Susie Russell, who's somebody I've now known for decades. Uh, yep, decades. Who I first met when I was about 24, and Susie was at Elands protecting forests there, a lot of tallowwood trees, and I met Susie there in the height of the most amazing community efforts to save trees, and... Today I'm contacting Susie again in Lismore, where a lot of environmentalists live. And Susie has driven from Elands and helped set up the Trees Not Bombs Cafe in the quadrangle of the university there. Susie, hi, welcome to Earth Matters. Hi, Beck. Lovely to be here. Please tell me about the Trees Not Bombs Cafe. Okay, well, like so many people, I was watching the floods unfold in the Northern Rivers and in Lismore in particular on the 1st of March. And a lot of my friends were involved. They were out in uh, tinnies rescuing people. They were rescued themselves from their houses. They were, uh, they lost everything or they lost their vehicles or 
their community and their, you know, the environment centre, you know, everything, the arts precinct, everything was basically just completely smashed by that epic flood. And I felt like um, I, I needed to do something to help. I saw a post from one friend saying they were hungry uh, and just the scale of what was happening and sort of realising that there were thousands of people with no homes, no kitchens, no food. Um, and I thought, well, you know, we have to be able to do something. Well, I realised that I could do something to help and that I felt um, that uh, I wasn't sure what that was. But in the past, um, when the Northeast Forest Alliances had some sort of blockade or action, there was the NIFA Liberation Cafe, it was called, uh, which was a sort of a tent that served hot food to people who obviously were out camping and needed it. And also I'm, I'm in touch with the Food Not Bombs group in uh, Newcastle that run a soup kitchen and serve up up help meals to mainly homeless people and so uh, I thought well why don't we collaborate and put together some sort of soup kitchen in Lismore and the Food Not Bombs people didn't have the capacity to help um, anyway so I organised um, all the gear I could gather uh, some friends did a bulk order from uh, of dry goods, a bulk order of fruit and veg, uh, arranged for them to be got to Lismore, and um, and sort of set up went, went set off to go to Lismore, which is about um, six hours north of where I live, to see what we could do to help, and um, and it became clear to me that. Uh, one of the big problems was that the catchment has been so degraded over centuries of uh, the rainforest being removed, the old growth forests being removed, the vegetation along the creeks being removed, that uh, th all those trees would um, in the past have slowed um, and held back the floodwaters, have had much more capacity to absorb the water and the fact that they've been removed um, and, the, and the landscape is now so bare played a big role in not just uh, the flood but also the scouring, um, the erosion, the siltation of the river. And uh, so at the same time, of course, we were all seeing the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine and bombs were falling on cities. And so Trees Not Bombs was was born in that sort of um, context. So uh, anyway, well, we arrived and we looked around um, where we might be able to set up. We've got a big old marquee, um, like a sort of a circus tent, really. It's quite big. It's eight metres by 12 metres. Um, we brought tables, chairs. Uh, we bought an old couch. Um, we bought a box of books. We bought games. We bought cooking gear. We bought cleaning gear. We, we basically had an incredibly eclectic mix of things that might come in handy. Uh, and in the end, we gave away all of the cleaning gear and uh, we set up a community soup kitchen 
um, which has become something more than a soup kitchen. It's now still uh, eight weeks pretty much after that first flood, the only place that I know of where you can sit down during the day and get a hot meal um, and get a hot meal. So there are a couple of places now that are open up, uh, coffee shops where you can get a takeaway croissant or some sort of small food. But as for a, a plate of hot food and somewhere to sit down, um, that recovery is still quite some way off. Um, Susie, you know, for a start, how does it feel to be somebody who spent your whole life trying to set the homeostasis, the ecological homeostasis, the balance of this planet right again by saving forests, and now to um, find yourself um, serving hot meals to really victims of climate the climate emergency, people experiencing the impacts of the wild weather and climate chaos that comes from global heating, and now these are people you know, and and what's what's happening to them? This is a this is a a, a mega social justice issue. Well, it is because once it leaves the media cycle, which it pretty much has in the wake of the election people feel like they have been forgotten and yet the disruption to their lives is still absolutely huge. There's the physical disruption, that is, that that if you still have a house and there are many thousands of people who don't, if you still have a house, it has been stripped completely bare, including of the inner walls. So chances are you don't have a kitchen uh, you probably have running water, and if and by now you, you might have one PowerPoint. Um, so I mean, people are living in very, very uh, rudimentary environment and still cleaning out mud and slush from around their houses and trying to scavenge bits of furniture, uh, but really basic um, living conditions. Then, of course, there is the disruption to services. So. If, there's been no delivery of the post, for example. Postal services have stopped. You can't get a delivery of gas. Um, so it's not just the actual physical flood. The, the recovery, you can't go to the shops and buy a whole range of things that you need to get your place back together because there are almost no shops now in Lismore. The CBD, apart from a few places, is completely boarded up. So you have to drive quite a way to be able to uh, access shops. A lot of people lost their cars. They don't have a car to be able to drive anywhere to go and access anything. So the mental health issues like the trauma, uh, even amongst people I know who are incredibly resilient and brave um, and who, who well understand the chaos that um, the, the changing climate is going to bring and is bringing, even they feel completely shattered by having one of those, you know, just the day after day living in this environment where just so many things frustrate um, getting anything done. And, of course, that's compounded by the ever-changing landscape of, um, you know, grant money available that, that most people 
can't navigate the processes to try and get money. It's like there are all these hoops that people have to jump through to access that first $1,000 grant that was announced when Morrison came to town. You had to answer a 50-question uh, form. Uh, so with, with some, you know, really ridiculous questions about what your house was constructed of. So it it really is like the, the sort of... Um, post-traumatic stress process is going to take months, if not years, for people to get over. I was just reading an account this morning of someone who said that they wake in fright, uh, worried that they're going to put their feet out of bed and step into water. Um, you know, the terror of having to try and find a way onto your roof in order to escape floodwaters that had filled your house on the second floor uh, I mean, those are things that are causing people to have recurrent nightmares when it rains. And the, the scary part about it also is that there was a second flood a month after the first. And because we, we are living in a time where, as you say, the ocean is way too hot, uh, the amount of evaporation is unlike anything we've seen before, and therefore the amount of precipitation and rain uh, and wild weather and the likelihood of sort of tropical cyclones moving south is greater than ever before. It's not off the cards that Lismore won't see another flood uh, in the next month or two. So people are really um, nervous about, for example, bringing their treasured possessions that they stored in their roof cavity down because they're worried that in a couple of weeks they're just going to have to move them all up again. So it's a very sort of minimalist camping experience that thousands, thousands and thousands of people are having to endure. And, of course, they're the people in Lismore, but out of town there are people whose roads have been destroyed who have to trek for half an hour because they, they've got no road access to their property. There are roads that communities are worried are going to collapse and, and starting to prepare about what, what they might do if that happens. You know, Do they need to set up food storage depots on either side of where the road is likely to collapse in order to prepare for those events? So it's really quite an extraordinary time in the region. I know that there's a lot of Bunjalung and Indigenous people living in Lismore and the Lismore region I know that the Koori Mail has been doing a lot to help them. The building that it's the Koori Mail building itself was by the river and got flooded. Do you have anything to say about that? Although I know you're not Bunjalung yourself. It, it has just been the most awesome experience to watch how Koori Mail and the five uh, Bunjalung groups that it supports or that, that own the Koori Mail have organised to respond to the needs of the community, not just their own communities, but everyone. They have, uh, you know, they sprung into action immediately. They've set up a food bank. They have counselling. They did a massive outreach program of sending people out to all the far-flung communities and family groups that they knew of to make sure that people were okay, took food supplies, I mean, the Koori Mail have led the grassroots response in so many ways and done this massive outreach and just provided 
support in numerous ways to the whole of the region. It's been incredible. And I mean, the other grassroots community organisation that deserves a mention is Resilient Lismore. That was an organisation that grew out of the 2017 floods, a community grassroots organisation that has coordinated thousands of volunteers with tens of thousands of calls for assistance to for people to get their houses back into some kind of habitable state. And they have a team of volunteers working 24 hours a day to be able to uh, provide that level of support, provide people with cleaning gear, uh, everything from, you know, gurneys to PPE. You're on 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial, or maybe you're listening in online at 3cr.org au forward slash streaming. We just heard a segment from Earth Matters um, speaking on the Lismore floods. Uh, we were fortunate enough to hear from our beautiful uh, interviewee, who is Beck Horridge. Um, sorry, our interviewer, Beck Horridge, who is interviewing Susie Russell about an initiative in Lismore called the Trees Not Bombs Cafe, serving hot food to uh, the the flood victims up in the north. And if you want to have some contribution towards the flood efforts, there is a GoFundMe going around, which is doing a lot of work. It was mentioned briefly in the interview, the Bundjalung Community Flood Relief uh, by the Kuri Mail. So if you just type in GoFundMe Bundjalung Community Flood Relief, um, and if you have some money to spare, it's probably a really good cause to get behind. And while we're talking about community efforts and pitching in, just to mention that 3CR has their annual Radiothon coming up in two weeks. So we'll be focusing on trying to uh, get our listeners to think about why 3CR has been important to them, why they listen and what we bring to you. And hopefully um, if you're able to give a small pledge, it'll be really appreciated because it'll help keep us on the air. Absolutely. Now, we know that this station is so unique in the fact that it's probably one of the only community-powered, 100% community-owned stations. And I think we deliver some really important stories that you don't really hear a lot from in other media outlets. So, yeah, as Claudia said any small amount of change um, or a big amount, if you can afford, uh, would go a really long way in keeping us on the air, keep these stories alive. Um, and there's some super easy ways to donate if you visit 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. You can uh, contribute some money online or you can also phone up 94198377 um, and pledge a donation uh, over the phone, but we'll uh, talk more on that in a couple of weeks when we have our special uh, Radiothon show. We're going to jump to a song now, um, and this one is called Reconciliation by Gary Kafoa. Sitting in a park one day a strange man came my way Hard faced but he had a kind smile He sat with me for a while 
things were a little slow. A different time, a different place. A different smile, a different face. He said, I've seen good and I've seen bad. I've seen changes for that, I'm glad. We've come a long way, but there's a long way to go. Then he said, as he got up to go, reconciliation is more than a word. Reconciliation is more than a word, my friend. And kindness from the sky above Put them in a basket Then you shake them all around Then you will find that peace will be found This is a different time and place Than where I'm from But I know that one day we will walk as one Little bit of hope Little bit of love Forgiveness and kindness from the sky above Well, I've seen good And I've seen bad I've seen changes for that I'm glad We've come a long way, but there's a long way to go. Then he said as he got up, reconciliation is more than a word. Reconciliation is more than a word, my friend. Reconciliation is more than a word, my friend. No, this is not the end. We're only beginning. Reconciliation. Sitting in a park one day When a strange man came my way Hard faced but he had a kind smile He sat with me for a while3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. You're on 3CR, joined by Jacob and Claudia. And that song we just heard was called Reconciliation by Gary Kafoa. Thanks, Jacob. Now, last week on the show, we spoke to Richard Sawada, the director of the St Kilda Film Festival, which is on now in Melbourne. And one of the highlights of the festival that Richard mentioned is a special screening of a film made 20 years ago, directed and co-written by Arante and Kalkadoon woman Rachel Perkins and the acclaimed Noongar actor Kelton Pell. The film is called One Night the Moon, and here to tell us why it is drawing attention two decades on is the star Kelton Pell. Good morning, Kelton, and thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. And I should say happy Reconciliation Week. Happy Reconciliation Week to everyone. How's uh, things going over in Perth? Has it been a busy week for you? No, no, I'm... Pretty lucky that I've got a, a bit of a sore throat 
so that I could get it out of the way before I came to Melbourne. Ah, so, okay. So you're sort of semi-isolating. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have been for a few days, so yes, today is really good. You know, it's only Sparrow's fart here in Perth. It's only quarter past six. So it's, so it's actually a great time of the morning to get up. So, um, yeah, I, I used, to, used to live in Perth and uh, they have beautiful, beautiful fresh mornings. <laughs> Oh, look, it's, it's a lovely time of the year, this this, this time of the year. Yeah, you're um, still in your autumn, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. Okay, okay, well, thanks again for joining us to talk about this film. And, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting one given uh, it was made back in 2001. So I just wanted to sort of go back in time and uh, get your thoughts on were you expecting this film uh, to be featured in a film festival 21 years later? Yeah, how did that come about? Well, you know, it's very fortunate that Rachel um, had seen something in me, and the, for the character, for, for the character Albert, um, and and yeah, for it to be still as strong twenty odd years later is is amazing. It's it's just goes to show that the the field of work that Rachel does, and and of course the story. This is a very, you know, it's a painful story that is based on a true story. So, you know, these things were happening still back then. And, and in, in a way, we've still got a long way to go in relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Um, yeah, we'll talk to that um, shortly. Would you like to give listeners just a small bit of context uh, about the story without giving away the whole plot line? This film is based on a little girl who goes missing in the outback. And it's um, it's very, very tragic, uh, but it's a, it's a musical. And so uh, being a part of a musical, this is a, a type of musical, is, um, was my first as well, which was um, which was fun. It was great fun to... to, to um, do some singing with Paul Kelly. Um, you know, the music was written by Paul and with Uncle Kev Carmody. So it's a story about a a, a young young person who goes goes missing, and unfortunately something happens, and then they you know they call in the tracker, but of course the tracker's not allowed to do anything until after the the uh, a, a tragic happening happens. So. It's a great. It's a, it is a great film. It's not. You know. It's. I, I remember now going to Sunset, uh, not Sunset, the um, Sundance Film Festival with Rachel because it's, this film was was chosen at Sundance, and you know, for it was it was the first time for me to travel overseas, um, but it's it just goes to show that the the, the sort of the talent that Rachel has, and and um, and the powerful stories that we still have in Australia, you know. Um, if you haven't seen it, then try to get along to it. And you know, I think seeing this again on the big screen, I I haven't seen it for a while, and I, this is one of my favourite films. It, it really is. When I when I get asked the question, which is my favourite film, this has got to be up there with with the top. Yeah. Mm. And I was wondering about at the time when you played the part of Albert, you know, as you say, he, he's an Aboriginal tracker who is denied the opportunity to help find 
this lost girl and is in fact denied access to the land itself. Do you remember how you felt when you first read the script and you were confronted with what what happened? Well, you know, for a non-Aboriginal person to read this, they'd be, they will, they'll be devastated. But I think it's also it's a double-edged sword for us because unfortunately, it wasn't too it wasn't that upsetting. Mm. We we as Aboriginal people are, and I complete I, I can I'd say this many times. We're conditioned. We've been conditioned since white settlement, and our our old people were taken. My grandmother was was a part of the Solon generation too, and she was so conditioned. She could not cry, and that's, that was really devastating. You know, and so, so these, these really tragic stories are just another day in our lives, really. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's sad to say that, but it's, it's actually the truth. You know, I, I really want uh, people to come along today because I've got Uncle Jack, uh, not today, on, on Sunday, because I've, I've got Uncle Jack Charles... Um, questioning me, well, questioning me, uh, having a conversation with me after the film. And Uncle Jack is is a prime example of of you know what has what has happened in the past to our people and what what how much you go through to to actually stand tall on the other end. And Uncle Jack's not a tall man, but he can, <laughs> I'll tell you what he stands tall. He's yeah, very, absolutely. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of what what Uncle Jack has done. You know. And, I think he and personifies it, the uh, reconciliation oh, totally, theme of totally. uh, yeah, be brave and totally. make and, make and, change. And, you know, That's him. The one thing that you know, I love reconciliation week, but, but oh, we don't need to reconcile as mm. Aboriginal people. Non-Aboriginal people need to reconcile with whatever problems they've got in their own heads and their own lives and their own world to actually, um, you know, have a heart and and. And realise that you are living in the in the in the country where we belong to. Mm. So, you know, our, our dreaming stories. We come from this land, and to let someone take our land, and yet still, it's it's a part of our DNA. It's it's we have to take care of people that are on our country who've even stolen our country and done really bad things to our people. It's, we still have the right, we still have to take care of you. And it's, you know, um, I really believe that, you know, if people had, had more of a heart, then there'd be more of an understanding of, of our, our mob. You know, why do we um, protest and stuff is because people aren't listening. Um, you know, and I... I it's a great thing that Rachel's done with these and, and other filmmakers, great filmmakers, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, is, is build this bridge that we can learn a lot off of each other. Um, we all bleed the same. Um, it's just about, you know, if we're going to go and live anywhere else in the world, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna learn the, the cultures and the language of the, of the land you're living in. Why doesn't it happen here? It's very sad. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. But we still still walk with our head held tight, you know, and, and with pride because this is the place we belong to. And, you know, it's, uh, I think until our dying days, um, 
we're just going to keep building these bridges to help accommodate people to 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 ease to learn a bit easier. Um, so I just wanted yeah. to come back to something you said earlier about the the mindset that you had when you came into the the film and the the story. But Rachel actually portrays both your perspective as the Aboriginal tracker and also uh, the mother of the lost girl. So the treatment that she gives is is not solely your perspective. And no. she said she wanted to make a film about the space between black and white Australians. Do you think this was her attempt to try and open up that space and uh, present it in a, in a way that was accessible for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal audiences? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, this this has happened in life uh, throughout the ages. It's, it's people want to actually do the right thing. But unfortunately, you know, you're married to someone. And in those days, a woman had to do what the man told him to do. You know, it was... It was very black and white, and and the mother was, you know, the father didn't want this Aboriginal tracker on the land, but the the mother knew she had a, a motherly instinct, you know, call it a motherly instinct, a gut feeling that this man, this Aboriginal man, knew exactly where this child was, um, but she had to un, unfortunately follow the husband's stupid ways. And and you know in the in the in the actual story, the father he went off to war and he got killed the first day in battle. Um, that gave the mother the right to look for her child. So, you know, I I, I think that he got his just desserts maybe. Um, so it wasn't just about the agency of First Nations people; it was also about the agency of women at that time. I I, I believe so. Mm. Look at. We, different people have different, um, take something differently out of a film. But I think in this film, looking, thinking back on it now, yes, it gave, it, it gave the mother the voice, the voice to, to actually stand up and, and she, she needed to find out where her child was. She needed to be able to, to put an end, you know, to, to finish this, her story. And that is to, to find the child and to, and to, you know, pay respect to her, her baby and, and give her a burial, and and it was so unfortunate. But in the true, in the, in the actual event, it was a little boy and he, he fell and he, I think he broke a limb, or a ankle or something, so he couldn't get out of a, a clay pit, and he perished in that pit because of his father's ignorance. Um, you know, and this is. It's music is is also um, a great medium to build to help build. You know, it's the nuts and bolts of a bridge as well. You could say. Um, yeah, let's talk about the music um, because it's obviously an interesting mix of a very serious uh, storyline and themes uh, together with the the lightness on the adjunct of music. Would you like to share a little bit about the role of music in the film? Well, it was, like I said, it was my first time doing, actually singing. So we've, we'd gone and um, recorded, Kelly, yeah. recorded with Paul, and then we had these massive speakers out 
on set, on country, at night. So we were actually doing singing live with the music. So it was, well, it was, it was so much fun. Um, just watching, remembering the lineup, um, you know, the weather and, <laughs> um, but the, it was, it, you know, the, the music with the drums and, and, you know, I, I think, my, and also my favourite song, apart from This Land, um, The Sand Is Mine, is, was the one that Paul, Paul sings. And and if you haven't seen it, then I'm not going to give it away because you've got to come and see it. It's such a, it's such a, oh look, this, it won, it won so many awards when it first came out. Um, for cinema, cinematography, and I think for music as well, for the musical, music score. Um, so, so yeah, what, what fun it was. And you've mentioned the cinematography. I believe that um, Rachel spent a, a lot of time working with a cinema, cinematographer to capture the landscape and bring it in to the film. What are your memories of being on uh, country in the Flinders Ranges for the filming? And, oh, I'm, I'm country. and I wondered, as a Noongar man, is it difficult to come onto the land of another cultural group and, and feel the connection that you feel to your own country? I mean, obviously it's going to be different, but, you know, we, it's a new, new, new environment and a new um, spiritual environment as well. Well, I'm, I'm quite fortunate to... You know, of course, every time we go to another country, it's it's really important that we we are welcomed um, as Indigenous people onto the country by the by the local people, um, um, uh, and the country sort of we everyone has something in us. We're all born with a connection. With, with something that connects us to country. <coughs> I think I'm pretty fortunate to have that that connection with country wherever I go. Um, and I, I'm just re- remembering back to the uh, location where we were supposed to find the little girl. Um, Rachel took me to a location and I went, well, what are we doing here? Um, and she said, this is where we're going to find the little girl. And I said, well, no, we're not. And she says, why? And I said, well, there's a cave there and there's a big tree there. We shouldn't be here. She said, why do you say that? And I said, well, look at it. It's just, This is the country telling us. Can you not see it? Anyway, I said, you found a dead kangaroo in that cave. She said, how did you know that? And I said, oh, well, and it was, it was fresh. Oh, oh, how did you? I said, well, it's because we, the country's, we're being told we can't be here. And anyway, it, it rained and and uh, wind all night whilst we were shooting in it, and I got hit in the head with a tent pole, um, a huge marquee pole. The, the tent puffed out with the wind, and, and, and I got whacked straight on the back of the head with this massive long centre pole. Um, and the safety officer closed it down, shut us down that night. So we had wow. to change location. So... I'm pretty sure the country was telling me, no, you're not allowed to be there. You know, I think, and also, there's so many special places in this land. A lot of them are sacred, and a lot of them you must not 
go there and film. Mm. You must get permission. Um, this one instance, there was permission, but I, I, I could feel it myself. And I'm, I'm glad that we moved our, our location. Um, we did nothing to, for the film. Um, I mean, it, did, it didn't affect the film in any way. It was just a location change. Uh, but it, it is very important to respect um, the country, and, and unfortunately, a lot of this country is void of, of our own of our mob um, to tell you what what's special and what's sacred in these in these lands. Because unfortunately, um, non-Aboriginal people own these lands, and and uh, they just think it's theirs now. And, and of course, they can have it until the day they die, and then it's you know it's, it's always going to be ours. Um, and as long as we we believe that we can all be a part of this land and all look after this land, then, we, you know, everyone here, um, we are Australians. They're, they're, they should be taking care of the land and the, and the people around them. So, yeah. Are you feeling more optimistic about the future now that we have a new Prime Minister who has pledged he will bring, he will back the Uluru Statement from the heart? Look, um. Our, our government is, is is yet... Look, there's, there's a lot of broken promises. Once we see things happen, then, you know, the, unfortunately, we'll always be taking two steps forward and one step back, one step back, because, you know, someone's not happy with what we're doing and they're going to take away from that. What is wrong with our people having, you know, stopping people climbing a rock and, and things? It, it's, this is their sacred places. I mean, we don't go to we don't go and climb churches. The biggest what's the biggest church in Melbourne? I think all the blackfellas should get some ropes and start climbing the church. I don't think people will be happy about that. Mm. You know, um, this it's just it's about it's about being respectful. It's not just a rock. You know, it's it's a very sacred place. Um, and until and I'm, I, you know, I think it's going people are going to have to take. A lot of people have to go and sit on the ground as well, you know. Go and sit down and learn a lot more about culture. And it's not just in your cities. You know, you've got to go bush. Go to the desert. Go go somewhere where you, you know, you, you're not comfortable. And I'll tell you, Black Follows will take care of you all the way. Unfortunately, right. we've run out of time. We would love to keep chatting, Kelton. Um, it's Thank been you, a delight to, to talk to you this morning and hear your views. And I would encourage listeners to hop online and book a ticket to see this uh, film and hear Kelton chat with Uncle Jack Charles this Sunday. Uh, the event is called One Night the Moon, a day of First Nations film, music and conversation, Sunday the 5th of June as part of the St Kilda Film Festival. And uh, you can go to the St Kilda Film Festival website, www.stkildafilmfestival.com.au. And that'll be at the Esplanade Hotel. That's right. And I think that's all we've got time for this morning. So uh, Thank thanks very much to all our guests and uh, listeners for tuning in. Thank you. Up next is Stick Together. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. 
Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.